Would you uh, join with me in prayer? Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us to come together and worship, to find you to be our greatest good and that all other goods are held up before you, proclaiming your greatness and your goodness. Help us to see that, Father. There are many goods that you've given to us. There are many things that we have that have been distracting to us. And uh, we have lifted higher than they have ought to be. And, and so, Father, I pray that uh, through the explanation of your word and uh, trusting in the power of your spirit to apply it to the souls of your people, that you will draw us to find our greatest satisfaction and contentment and happiness in you. Father, but there are many competitors before us. And we, I, have uh, given ourselves, myself, over to them time and time again. So, Father, would you please um, grant to us grace to see that happiness and satisfaction will ultimately and only and permanently, eternally be found in you and at your right hand. Father, may these be more attractive to us. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I, I think it goes without much of an argument that people want to be happy. I mean, it's fundamental to who we are that we want to be satisfied and happy in life. It doesn't matter the time in which you live. It doesn't matter the country in which you live. It doesn't matter the ethnicity that you're from. It is a desire for us to be satisfied and content in life. And this is not new. This is discovered long ago. And many of you have read the quote by, um, from Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war, of others avoiding it, is the same desire in both. Attend it with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We're motivated to do that which we think is going to make us happy. Now, the question for the Christian is, is this right? I mean, should we seek happiness or should we seek obedience? Or perhaps that's even a false question. Because oftentimes the church has not sought happiness because we didn't think we ought to. And the church has been marked by a dourness, a sourness. You know, H.L. Mencken was a, a 19th century, 20th century journalist in Baltimore. And, and looking at Puritanism with jaded eyes, I would argue, he defines Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. That, that, that was his take on how Puritanism describes the Christian faith. Uh, Psalm 16 would say something radically different than that. I mean, Psalm 16 is this miktam, and I explained this with uh, Psalm 56 last time. It, it, we don't understand fully the, under, the definition of that word, but the root of it has the idea of inscription or, or, or something indelibly printed on something. In other words, it, it, it's like you see it on a monument. We don't want to forget this. This is important to remember. So this psalm from David, he's wanting it to be indelibly imprinted on your heart to not walk away from the truth of this psalm. And the psalm really is going to simply explain 
that our happiness comes by making God central, our refuge, our hope. That, that, that our happiness, that pursuing hard after God will lead to delights that are unimaginable, unattainable in any other measure. Now, the irony of this psalm is that it starts out in trouble. You're going to see in the first verse, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. A refuge, you know, refuge is that place in a storm when you're in trial and you run to it, you find safety, security, and comfort. In fact, in Israel, when, when the land was, was populated with the people, God brought back the tribes, he designated certain cities called cities of refuge. So that if you're being threatened by someone who's seeking revenge, you can run to the city and find rest, safety, comfort, ease, peace. Now, David is not running to a city with physical walls, but he's running to God because he's in trouble. And he wants to find happiness in the midst of trouble. He's wanting to find happiness. And really, the psalm breaks into two parts. The first part is how to make God your refuge. How do you do it? And David's going to show us this beautiful picture of faith. Here's a man who has made God his refuge. And then in the second half, 7 to 11, not half, but second part, uh, you have the joys that will flow into the life of the person who makes God their refuge. So I, I just want to do two things today. How do we make God a refuge? What does it look like? What's a picture of it? And then what's the joy that will come out of it? So if you turn with me to Psalm 16, let's read it together. Psalm 16, this McDam of David. Um, Preserve me, O Lord. Didn't print the first verse. Preserve me, O Lord, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One or favored one see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, so, how do we make God our refuge? Well, in, in the second verse, you kind of see it. He says, he says I say to the Lord, you are, my, you are my Lord. You notice how the first Lord is all capitals. It's the name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. He says, I have no good apart from you. So what David's saying is that to make God our refuge, we have to make him central. We have to make him just he is our point of devotion. We have no good apart from God. If we don't see God that way, he is not a refuge to us. Now, now, David is reminding himself by calling God Yahweh, he's using the personal name of God. So he's reminding himself, I'm not just coming as an outsider. I'm coming to God because I'm in a covenant relationship with him that he initiated by his grace. So God already feels towards me a certain way that draws me towards him, that he is my God. And because God is my God, 
that personal idea, he's my God, he's your God, that we can say we have no good apart from him. We have absolutely no good. Now, saying that we have no good apart from God is not saying that there are not other goods. It's just that we have no other goods. The goods that we have cannot be good if they're apart from God. So you look at family, you look at success, health, business, you look at church. These are goods insofar as they lead us to see the goodness of God. They're like, lat- they're like rungs on a ladder. These goods are leading us to see the ultimate goodness. And what makes these things actually good is God. For these things, without God, they would not be good. And that's why the psalmist in 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? He says, and There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. The same idea. C.S. Lewis said it very clearly. He said, if I have God and everything, I have no more than if I have God and nothing. Because when you have God, you have all good. Now, there's a threat to you making God your refuge. And that is when you make the gifts of God greater than God. This is what we call, or Augustine called an inordinate love. You, you overlove something. Now, it's right to give thanks to God for the gifts he gives us. But they always ought to move up to God. So you're thankful for your children. That's appropriate to be. But in giving thanks to God for your children, it ought to rise to God who is the giver of all life, not remain at your children. Or if you're thankful for your salvation, it ought to rise up to the very person of God who is merciful enough to save. So, so all these things, now you may say, well, this is kind of a slight nuance, Tom. You know, I'm thanking God for his gifts. I'm really thanking God. It's not that way. If we don't think, if we don't think intentionally that these gifts are reflections of God, you will never be able to love God for himself apart from his gifts. And so when your gifts are taken away, you won't love them. Or you'll struggle with loving them. And this is the danger. The danger is that when we make much of the gifts of God without making of God, then our life becomes precarious because you begin to live in fear that you're going to lose those things or you're going to to move into strife to protect those things because all the gifts of God are transitory. I mean, people die. Things break. Technology changes. They will not last. And if you don't see the gifts of God as rays coming out of the sun, leading you to the sun, then he won't be your refuge. Your refuge will be found in the people that are in your life or the things that you have or the dreams that you hope to share. It won't be in God. So to be happy, to be satisfied, begins with making God a refuge, and it's got to be the central joy in your life. But secondly, making God a refuge is in the context of the community. Now, this is going to be the rub that I, I love bringing up to you because the community, you know, one author said, he said, um, To live above with the saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Uh, Look at verse 3 with me. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David is finding that he only has a good in God, but that is developed in the context of the community. 
So saying that he delights in the saints, delights in the church, is not running contrary to him finding his only good in God. But it becomes the expression as David delights in the saints of whom are seeking God as their greatest good, then we move in seeing God as our greatest good. It doesn't rob God of his first place. Because it's in the context of this church whereby we are seeing the grace in one another's life. I mean, I I hear someone move out of a besetting sin into a place of repentance and faith. I see the goodness of God in that. I'm drawn to him as my greatest love. When someone shares a testimony of how God has delivered them out of darkness into light, I'm reminded of the goodness of God. My heart is, is drawn to him. And I'm reminded, he is my only good. Look at what he's doing in the lives of the saints. That's the context of the community. The problem with the community, though, is we can rub each other raw. Uh, We don't like to get in the messiness of one another's lives. Folks, we're all broken. We we all kind of have a goofy side to us. And we often move to, if you remember a few years back, um, Connor the cowboy. He was the man that just wanted to do spirituality his own way. He's going to ride into the, out into the countryside, and he's going to do it his way. He doesn't need other people. He's going to commune with God. Folks, the threat to making God your refuge is you cannot do it apart from the community. That The community is the incubator, if you will. Now, in the community, we have trouble. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about that the community without trouble is not a community of Christ. That, that it is only when a community comes to the disillusionment And the struggle that we have with each other, that's when we begin to see this is a community around Christ. Because we need Christ. In fact, he wrote these words in his book, Life Together. Remember, he was was a Lutheran pastor who was executed by the Nazis right at the very end of World War II. And and his church went underground, and so he was writing about, about community and the importance of it. Now, it was out of the context of they were being hunted, and he would ultimately be killed. But, I mean, he knew the value of community because they had lost the freedom to experience it. And here's what he writes about it. He says, But God has put his word into the mouth of men and women in order that it might be communicated to other men and women. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of another man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself. He needs his brother as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weak, weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's heart is sure. In other words, we need to support and encourage one another. To see that God is good. Sometimes you're going to go through various difficulties and troubles and trials and it begins to press you to begin to doubt the goodness of God. Uh, You may believe it cognitively. You may hold to a certain set of propositions, but your experience of the goodness of God is a far cry from what you believe. And so the brothers and sisters come together even though we're awkward with each other and we sometimes rub each other the wrong way. But David's saying, In the saints are the excellent ones. This is in whom I delight. To find God a refuge apart from this body is going to be a challenge for you. But thirdly, to to make God your refuge, uh, we are to avoid idolatry. We're to avoid syncretism. Look with me in verse 4. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. 
their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, David is saying, here he's delighting in the excellent ones, but he sees others of the community moving after other gods. And, and, and he's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to chase after other gods because sorrows multiply. Now, that, that phrase should ring a bell in your mind because it comes from Genesis 3.16 when Eve is being cursed by God over labor, bringing forth children, that sorrows are going to multiply. Here's what happened. Eve had God, and so that's all Eve needed. But Eve wanted more, and so she pursued that path of disobedience by eating the fruit because God wasn't enough for her. She wanted God plus, and so sorrows were multiplied. David is saying, I'm not even going to offer an offering. I'm not even going to mention these gods names on my lips because remember mentioning the name of a god was to seek the power within that god for you so if you're the god of fertility if you're the god of of the fields if you're the god of protection and security you would garner these gods and the power with them so you'd believe in yahweh but you'd also grab these other gods of fertility because my wife isn't having children or the fields aren't producing so i'm going to get yahweh and then some and david's saying i won't have that This threatens God as our refuge. If you think you need God plus something, I need a new job. My life isn't very happy. I need a new wife. I need more money. I need better health. It's God and this is what syncretism is. It's not straight up idolatry in the sense that we're going to turn away from Yahweh and just completely worship other gods, but it's adding to God. And we do this in the community all the time. I want God and this. Yeah, I'd be happy. I know that I'd be happy if I had God plus more obedient children. And that's not finding God as your refuge. So, so it threatens this joy in your life when you don't make God your refuge. And then last, look with me, there's a satisfaction in God that we're to find. If we're going to look at God as my refuge, if we're going to look at him as my shelter, look, at, look with me in verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These are very sweet words. What do they mean? I think the psalmist, David, is saying, some people think that when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and cup, that God provides what we need to eat. He provides for sustenance. I think there's more, because look at the last part of that verse, that last phrase, you hold my lot. I think he's saying that he is satisfied that he's finding God because God holds my lot. God draws the lines. God is the one providentially guiding my life, bringing circumstances, deliverance, even bringing trials into my life, teaching me and preparing me. I think I see this because when he says in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, that's to remind us of the time where Israel was being brought back into the promised land and God drew the lines where each tribe would live. God set up where they would be. God established the places that they would live. Remind you of Acts 17, that he appoints the times and the places in which we live. That God has drawn. The lines themselves are not pleasant. What's pleasant about this is that God is my inheritance. He's the one drawing the lines. And so where you are right now, he has drawn the lines for you to be in. But it may not be pleasant themselves. But because he's your inheritance, not the land, he's your inheritance, you can find a satisfaction that he is there with you, sustaining you, making a plan for you. This is why I ask people in terms of when they're in trial, what's God doing here? I mean, God's God's sovereign. God is in the midst of your struggle. What is he doing? How is he leading? How is he loving? How is he protecting? What's he drawing you to? Because we won't make God our refuge. The threat to making God our refuge with these verses 
is that we think, I'm not satisfied with my marriage. I'm not satisfied with my life. I'm not satisfied with my children, with my job, with my home, whatever. And we always want out. And so God is always being held as if he's doing a lousy job being God. And yet this verse is saying, David by faith is saying, you have drawn lines for me, and they are good because you're my portion. You're my inheritance. Right now it is difficult. But I'm resting that in you I have all I need. There's a freedom here. You don't have to wonder, why, am I, why can't I be taller, prettier? Why can't I be wealthier? Why can't I be smarter? You know, I wish I was different. You say, no, God, you have drawn these lines for me. But because they came from your hand, you have given me my lot. I'm going to rest in that. And we're going to see how at the end of this thing, eternity is going to flush a lot of this out for us. So I don't want you to hear me as being casual with the difficulties you're going through. I just want you to see these difficulties in the context of God being your inheritance, drawing your lot. So let me ask you, is God your only good? Are you struggling with this? Do you have other goods? And if you have other goods that you're looking to for joy and happiness and satisfaction, how long can you hold them? How secure are they in your hand? I mean, are, are, you, are you satisfied in the saints of the community to which you're planted? Are you happy with the saints? And why not? And what is it about the community that moves you away or moves you towards? Can you say... The lines that have been drawn for me, even though difficult though they may be, are pleasant for me because you are my portion. This is a big move of faith that he is my refuge. He is my fortress. Okay, so that's a picture of how do we make God a refuge? We, we make God our only good. We remind ourselves of that. We, we, we develop that goodness of God in the context of a community. We, we will not pursue other things in addition to God. And that we're going to fight for satisfaction in the midst of difficulty. That's where the fight of faith is. The fight of faith is finding that God is good in the midst of situations that are not good. Okay, so what happens out of that? Well, look with me at verse 7. He tells us he's going to give us four quick just joys and happinesses that you will have as you rest in God. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So the first thing David says is, there is a wisdom from God when you make him your refuge. There is a joy that you will have in life by being guided by God. That you turn to God, you seek wisdom, and he will give you clarity through the, through the brethren, but also through the spirit in your mind, even at night, as your heart is instructed. That word for instruction, by the way, is kind of a more of a face-to-face truth. It's more of a schooling. There's a little bit more of a, not a fierceness to it, but it's more direct. That at night, God will even instruct you. And you've felt this way. Sometimes you've tossed and you turn. You've been up at night. And you've been led to be perhaps convicted of sin. And that the next morning, you'll repent and receive the joy that comes from that. That even at night, when the noise is down, the distractions are eliminated, the temptations are fewer, that you can, you know, you can hear God, you can sense the Spirit of God speaking to you, giving you wisdom, giving you direction, maybe giving you faith to do something that you don't think you're able to do. Think about Alexander McLaren, the a pastor of the 19th century says, in the night seasons, things are more clearly seen in the dark than by day. Many a whisper from God steals into our ears. That's what we look for. God instruct me at night. So he gives us wisdom. Our happiness can come because I'm going to have wisdom needed. Carol and I, all the situations we've been confronted by, I mean, many of them, we don't know what to do. 
we joke about anywhere we've gone, we've just backed into it because we don't often know what do we do. And yet God gives us wisdom. It may be through circumstances. It may be through the brethren. It may be through the spirit. It may be through the scriptures. But God has never left us void of the knowledge that we've needed to do what we've needed to do, even though we haven't fully understood what we've been doing, guiding us, leading us with wisdom. But secondly, your happiness, as you seek God's refuge, as you make God your refuge, your happiness is going to be that you will never be short of God's protection. Look with me at verse, at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In other words, David's drawing a picture. The presence of God is protective over you. So God is at your right hand. He's like the, he's like the attorney, powerful, prepared, arguing your case before the judge. He's like the soldier, armed and ready, at your right hand. Now, the fact that you will never be shaken implies it will be an attempt made. So the fact that you'll never be shaken implies that you're going to be attacked. But his presence is there to protect you. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be shaken in the sense of the attack comes on, but it just means that God's going to uphold your faith. He's going to uphold your joy in him that he's going to sustain you. Folks, I think most of us know a person or two who has gone through great tragedy that would shake you if you went through it. Or if you thought, if I had to go through that, I've seen people go through cancer. And it would shake you, and yet they have been held strong. The sustaining presence of God, the comfort of God has enabled them to walk through literally death without being shaken. That's the promise of God. Uh, Spurgeon, when preaching on this, he says, always have an eye to the Lord's eye and an ear to the Lord's voice. This is the right state for the godly man. His God is near him, filling the horizon of his vision, leading the way of his life, furnishing the theme of his meditation. What vanities we should avoid, what sins we should overcome, what virtues we should exhibit, what joys we should experience, if indeed we set the Lord always before us. I mean, test him in this. Try him in this. Uh, But another reason that we can be happy when we make God our refuge is because he promises to deliver us from death. This is profound in terms of the language used here. He says, my heart, in verse 9, he says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Now, David, you know, as we've studied him in these different psalms, I mean, he was constantly under threat, constantly being pushed. But he says, my body dwells. My flesh dwells secure. What God is promising here, and is the foundation of your happiness, is that death is not a threat to you. That he will not abandon your body to Sheol. That's the underworld. It's the region of darkness. It's hell. You will not be abandoned there. That God will not let death be master over you. That your body may see corruption. We'll speak about this in a minute. But it will not fully be victorious. That here is a promise for every one of us who will face death. Our body will not be abandoned. Now listen, death is very ugly. You know, I have had the privilege, and I mean that with all sincerity, of being with many people when they died. It is not pretty. It's not the dying part that I'm speaking about. It's the losing someone. It's them going to a place you cannot go. And them going to a place they've never been. And it's ugly in the sense of you see the life taken out. Remember, 
I remember when my father died, and, and I was sitting there with him, and I wanted to look at it. I wanted to stare at it boldly because of the hope that we have in Christ. And I remember grabbing his leg and feeling the coldness come on. And I thought, death has no victory anymore. I, I wanted to make sure it, it is ugly. But this promise gives us hope. It gives us happiness. It gives us a joy in the face of it because he's promised he will not abandon us. That you, when you face that day, that he will not abandon you. You have a promise of a covenant-keeping God who has established it in blood, the eternal blood of his son, that he will never abandon you. So when we bury our loved ones, we bury their bodies. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That gives us happiness. If you don't reconcile what happens at death, your happiness is temporal at best, and it's subject to any sort of doctor's report, lump, not feeling right. All of a sudden, happiness is very, very shaky. But when you know the God of the universe will not abandon your body to Sheol, that he will raise you again, then you have a firmness in your happiness that cannot be taken from you from any medical report. And then fourth and last, the reason we can be happy in making God our refuge is that he's going to make known to us the paths of life in verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a sermon alone, as Charles was mentioning. God, as you turn to God, as you move by faith, turning to God, saying, I'm going to make you my refuge. I'm going to look to you alone for hope and for help. That he makes known to us these paths. He reveals these paths to us. These paths lead to joy in this life. Joy in the midst of struggle. But they lead to a place, a destination, and that is the right hand of God where pleasures are forevermore. Now, tracing out what these pleasures are like and me trying to articulate with words um, would be a challenge. I mean, I, I, would, I, I want to read to you, actually, from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was known to write a lot about hell. He was the, he was the Puritan minister up in uh, uh, New England in the 18th century. But he wrote a lot about heaven, and he wrote some glorious things. And here's what he wrote about it. He said, How blessed, therefore, are they that do see God, that come to this exhaustless fountain, They have obtained that delight that gives a full satisfaction. Being come to this pleasure, they neither do nor can desire any more. They can sit down fully contented and take up with this enjoyment forever and ever and desire no change. After they have had the pleasures of beholding the face of God millions of ages, it won't grow a dull story the relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. There is enough still for the utmost employment of every faculty. There will be no end. You can dive to the bottomless ocean and never exhaust the glories of God when you see him face to face. We get bored so easy. And to think that after millions of ages, his glory, And his pleasure will satisfy you forever. It's something we need to dwell on. I mean, to fight for joy, you need to cast your mind to the next life. You cannot live day by day, week by week. 
I mean, it's, we as adults are often like children. You know, children, we don't fault them for, if they can think to the end of the week, I'm excited. But, but for parents, we, we do that. We don't think, we don't cast that eye to the next life. Where we think, what does it mean to behold the face of God in Christ forever? And if you don't have that as part of your paradigm, then things are going to rock your world. And your, your joy and your happiness and your satisfaction is going to be very transitory. It's again going to be subject to this age. Do you have this? Do you think this? I mean, ask yourselves, how happy are you? And if you are happy, what are you rooting your happiness in? Is it permanent? Is it steadfast? Is it transitory? What are you rooting it in? Are you considering the wisdom that you have? When you make God your refuge, he's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give you protection, protection for faith, that you will never waver. Or you may waver, but he will keep you upright. That your body will never be abandoned. We're not going to leave him. You may leave the body in the grave. He will never leave that body. It will be returned to him and fully restored to be like Christ when he sees Christ and these joys forevermore. This is where I don't want to be so transcendent, but folks, we are so temporal and material. We need transcendence to find happiness in this world. And this is transcendent truth just offered for us. So I think these blessings are for us. Now, let me just try to explain uh, one nuance of this text that's often confused. A lot of people will look at this text and they'll say, this is speaking about Jesus, not about us. These promises here are not for us. It's just for Jesus. He's the one that's fulfilled this. And uh, I do want to say that I think David wrote this and I think David enjoyed this. I think David enjoyed the joy. I think David enjoyed protection and wisdom. I think David enjoyed the promise of God that even though he die, he will not be abandoned. But I would also say that David is a king. Remember, David is the king of Israel. So David is the king of Israel is to represent God to the people. So when they see the king, they were to have a foretaste of God. And David, as king, was to live for and love and protect and lead his people. That was what he was to do until the true king came. David knew he wasn't the perfect king. David knew that the psalm didn't entirely apply to him. As you can see in the second half of verse 10, his body did see corruption. But David knew, because in 2 Samuel 7, he was promised that he would have a descendant, and this descendant would have an eternal kingdom. And so it's not surprising that David, writing this psalm, is thinking ahead to that descendant that would come. And so it isn't surprising to us that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, when Peter and Paul were writing respectively, that they spoke of this psalm, quoting it from chapter, or, uh, Psalm 16 from 9 to 11, and they applied it to Jesus. Here's what they said. David says, this is, Paul, this is Peter preaching, David says concerning him, Jesus, I saw the Lord before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is Peter now quoting Psalm 16. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath, that's the second Samuel seven, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised Jesus from the dead and that 
we are all witnesses. So this Psalm 16 finds its perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because all the promises I've laid out to you are now secured in the resurrection of Christ. So I'm not just giving you a new ideology or some new nice thoughts that you can leave here. Oh, those are nice thoughts. These thoughts are grounded in the resurrection of Christ. So if Christ be raised, then these promises are certain. They're sure. They're worthy of creating happiness in you. As you make Christ your king, he will now furnish wisdom. As you make Christ your king, he will now never leave you nor forsake you. As you make Christ your king, he will never abandon your body. But to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And to, as you make Christ your king, so he will bring you joys. He said, I've come that you might have life and, and have it to the full, have joy to the full. So for the Christian, your hope is grounded in the resurrection because Christ has now come and validated, confirmed, without a shred of doubt, yes, we will have these promises as ours. They're worthy for you to rest your life on them. Now, for the non-Christian here, uh, this is a hopeful passage for you. This is very hope-filled. For those of you who are uncertain as to where you are, this is hope-filled because in this life you're going to have trouble and you're going to look for a refuge and you're going to turn somewhere. It may be a new it may be a new relationship, it may be a new job, it may be a a new medical practice, it may be some new drug therapy for whatever you may have or will have. And, and, And all these things, I want to warn you, they're transitory, they're weak, they cannot bear the weight of a soul made in the image of God. But this offers you hope that in Christ, you'll have the wisdom of God. In Christ, you're going to have the protection of God. In Christ, you're going to have the assurance that you'll never be abandoned to the grave. And in Christ... You will be with him forever. And so if there are some of you who are struggling with this and want to come forward after the service, we would love to speak with you. Let's take a few minutes now and take this psalm and appeal to God with it. I will open us in prayer briefly. I would ask those of you who would like to pray as well, to pray briefly and to pray loudly. And what we're just doing is we have been hit with the word of God. The words have been broken over your souls. And now we respond to God in light of what we've just learned of God. So it can be a word of praise or it can be a word of petition. It can be a word of confession that you have made so many things better than God. And then um, Keith will close us in just a moment. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, just the fact that we can't even understand that actually draws me to a greater excitement over them. Father, give us a vision, give us a sight to your glory uh, that we would find you to be a refuge leading us to great joy. Thank you.